0: So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
1: Today's episode of the Queens of England podcast is sponsored by Audible, the home of over 180,000 audiobooks and other spoken word products. Now, long-term listeners to the show will remember that back in the day, I used to give book recommendations, but frankly, lots of our queens didn't have audiobooks that really related to them, and so I felt that I was really having to make tenuous connections. Therefore, I stopped and started using a more general message. However, I was walking through Waterstones the other day and came across a book on none other than our favourite witch queen, Joanna of Navarre. Called The Queen's Choice, it is a historical fiction book written by Anne O'Brien, and it's all about her decision to leave her children in Brittany and go off to England to marry Henry IV. I haven't had a chance to read it yet, but the reviews online are excellent, and it's jumped to the top of the list of books for me to pick up. So, you can get The Queen's Choice as your free audiobook today, or indeed any other day, by signing up at audibletrial.com forward slash queens for a free 30-day trial. Of course, you can choose any other of Audible's range of products. There's something in there for everyone. And if you don't like it, you can cancel it and keep the free book. And of course, by signing up at audibletrial.com forward slash queens, you'll be showing your support for the Queens of England podcast. I'd also like to remind you all about the best ways to keep in touch with the show. There's my website, queensofenglandpodcast.com, and the Facebook page, Queens of England Podcast, and the Twitter page, at queenspodcast. Also, don't forget to leave a review on iTunes. It's the best way to grow this community and get new listeners to join us for every episode. Hello, and welcome to the Queens of England podcast. Episode 25, Catherine of France, the Trophy Queen. Cast your minds back a few weeks, you'll remember that Isabel of France, the child bride of Richard II and very short-lived Queen. Back in that episode, I mentioned that she was the eldest surviving daughter of Charles VI of France and his wife Isabella of Bavaria. She was in fact one of 12 children the couple had, nine of which made it out of infancy, though sadly few of them lived long lives. Only four of them would make it into their 20s. Of them, the youngest daughter and tenth child overall was Catherine, she was born in 1401 into a kingdom that was in crisis. Now I talked in detail in episode 22, Isabel of France, the daughter of the carbuncle, about Isabel's parents, but I'll remind you all, as it was a few weeks ago now, her father Charles had been suffering from severe mental illness for nine years before Catherine's birth. We don't know quite what it was, but it manifested itself in a number of ways, including bouts of psychosis, violence, paranoia, and memory loss, amongst other things. This would have been destabilizing in a kingdom that was otherwise stable, but France at this point was anything but, thanks to the decades of war against England and the powerful duchies that formed its component parts becoming rather belligerent and operating foreign policies counter to that of the kingdom. In 1404, when Catherine was just three, Charles was completely sidelined, and that was when things really started to go to hell, as two main parties vied for control of the kingdom. One was led by Catherine's uncle, Louis Duke of Orleans and the other by her cousin, John the Fearless, Duke of Burgundy. This was the Armagnac-Burgundian civil war that I've been alluding to for the last few episodes, and it was so vicious that George R. R. Martin has said that it was one of the inspirations behind the events in his Song of Ice and Fire series. In nominal control of the kingdom was Catherine's mother, Isabella, who headed the Regency Council, but in reality, no one could keep a hold of the runaway freight train that was France's domestic situation. There are some extremely colourful and wildly lurid slurs thrown at Isabella in this period. She is accused of sleeping with basically everyone, including both Louis of Orléans and John the Fearless of Burgundy, and at the time was considered to have favoured the Armagnac side of the Civil War, but she could not stay ahead of the machinations of Duke Louis and end up being imprisoned, though she was sprung quickly by John the Fearless, and so it went on. As you may imagine, I'm not going to go into this mess but I think it is briefly worth mentioning again just how bad the reputation of Isabella of Bavaria was. The 19th century, well, some call her historian, but I really don't think she has enough of an appreciation for facts to be considered one, so let's just call her writer, Agnes Strickland, best articulates the case against Isabella by saying that she, quote, "...was one of the most wicked women that ever lived, for she not only joined her brother-in-law, the Duke of Orléans, in stealing the revenues of the royal household, thus leaving her husband and children with no means of support, but she neglected them most criminally, and then from a long time deserted them. The poor king was insane, which fact in itself would have kept any true wife at his side, but his guilty, wretched consort deserved neither the title of wife or mother, for she neglected her duty as both." Now, like I said, this denunciation of Isabella is almost certainly wildly exaggerated, owing as it does to a fantastically misogynistic view of female action and power, but it isn't too far off from the view that many in the medieval world, especially those not acquainted with her, would have had of the French Queen. What we can say, though, is that Isabella did not exactly leave her husband and children in the best state in the dubious safety of the Palace of Saint-Paul, the place where Catherine had been born in 1401. There they were essentially abandoned, with only a few servants to accompany them, and with hardly the money to keep a household fit for a king and his children. At least, though, they were mostly insulated from the machinations of French high politics. That is, until Catherine's father briefly became lucid and retook his crown. Isabella and Orléans had to flee to Milan, and she tried to take Catherine with her, but was prevented from doing so by John. This is often portrayed as John the Fearless preventing the abduction of the young princess, but it could so easily also be shown as a nobleman keeping Catherine hostage against her mother. Catherine was then raised away from her parents at Poissy, along with her sister Mary, and there she was at least secluded from the next massive shock that was about to hit the French kingdom. Henry V had had his eyes on Catherine from the moment he took the throne. As the daughter of the French king, any son of theirs would have had a very strong claim to the French crown, as he would combine Catherine's royal blood with Henry's own claim. Henry vowed that he would marry no other woman than Catherine. It was a vital part of his campaign to secure the French crown for himself and his descendants. Negotiations started in 1414, but came to naught. Here it is related in the Chronicle of John Stretcher. He states that Henry sent an embassy to France in that year and, quote, "...they deliberated with the King of France and his council concerning a marriage to be celebrated between King Henry of England and the noble Lady Catherine." daughter of the king of France, but these envoys of the English king had only a brief discussion with the French on this matter, without arriving at any conclusion consistent with the honour or to the advantage of our king, and so they returned home. Famously, according to many sources, this failure of negotiation has a lot to do with balls. The Dauphin of France, Catherine's brother, is supposed to have sent to England a consignment of tennis balls, stating that he should play with these rather than mixing with the big boys. Henry is supposed to have countered that he, quote, would play with such balls in the Frenchman's own streets. The negotiation for the marriage of Catherine to Henry is the best example that I have found so far in this story of a woman being used as a symbol for her own kingdom. This could not have had less to do with Catherine as a woman, as a human being. This was about France submitting to England just as a woman was supposed to submit to her husband. This was about the transfer of the destiny of the French crown away from the House of Valois to the House of Lancaster, just as the wife moved from being the property of her father to the property of her husband. It was clear that if Henry wanted to marry Catherine, he would have to force her family to release her under duress. He could do it, but first he would need to bring France to its knees. And that is exactly what he did with his invasion in 1415. It all started extremely unpromisingly with a long slugging siege at Arfleur, and Henry soon found himself pursued by an enormous French army led by the Constable of France and many leading Armagnacs. Henry finally made his stand near the castle of Agincourt in northern France, and there won one of the most famous victories in English history. Like at Cressy, the cream of the French nobility was slaughtered, but this time France was not strong enough to survive such a blow. Henry was now the biggest beast in this fight, and he was playing for keeps. France lost Dauphin after Dauphin because they really could not catch a break, eventually ending up with Dauphin Charles, the brother of the one who had told Henry to go play with his balls. But Charles, at this point, was still a teenager. That said, Henry did not yet have the kingdom completely at his mercy, and he did not have the military might to occupy France through force of arms. He needed a diplomatic solution, through aggressive negotiation, of course. Apologies to the Star Wars fans there. This aggressive negotiation took the form of a bloody campaign in northern France, where England reconquered Normandy, crushing French armies and sending their leaders back to England as captives. In the midst of this crisis, the Burgundians and Armagnac functions continued their bitter strife. The Armagnacs had lost scores of their leaders at Agincourt, while John the Fearless had not sent troops, but even he had lost family members in the slaughter. In the name of the Queen in May 1418, John seized Paris and took control of the French government, but the Dauphin Charles escaped and set up his own shadow government at Bourges. France was now effectively cleft in twain, and England took advantage, reopening negotiations with the Burgundian-led French Regency about the marriage between Henry and Catherine, one that John the Fearless was amenable to if it meant peace. Henry was still open to negotiating with Dauphin on the basis of his submission, but Charles was a man who just never knew when he was beaten and refused to compromise with the English, This made for some very frustrated diplomats, and only pushed the English and Burgundians closer together. The two parties met at Moulins near Paris in 1419. Here it is in the Chronicle of John Hall. The next day all such as were appointed, repaired toward the pavilion, ordained for the consultation, where the King of England, like a prince of great stomach and no less good behaviour, received humbly the French Queen and her daughter, and they honourably embraced and familiarly kissed. The Duke of Burgundy made low courtesy and bowed to the king, whom the king lovingly took by the hand and honourably entertained. For all John Hall's flowery words, though, the negotiations at Moulins were still fraud. The Burgundians knew that they could not sell their souls here for English gold. While they recognised the advantages of peace, it was clear that the rest of France may not, especially with the Dauphin running around telling anyone that would listen that the Burgundians were traitors. At this point, Everyone was so afraid of losing face that they lost sight of what it was they were really trying to do. This led to a lot of pontificating and grandstanding on various points of the marriage agreement, most especially the dowry, because of course everything boils down to money. The Burgundians offered 800,000 crowns, which amounted to around 200,000 pounds, a pretty huge sum, but, because of course there was a but, They argue that because when Richard II was deposed, his young wife, Isabel, of course Catherine's sister, had been returned home, this meant a... break in her marriage contract, and that compensation was required. Therefore, Catherine's dowry should be reduced by 75% from that 800,000 crowns. Henry, for his part, demanded that he be able to maintain his claim on the throne of France, as well as all the lands that he had conquered. England could never accept the slap in the face that was that dowry, and Burgundians could not hope to hold on to power if they just signed away half the country to the hated English. Thus, they reached Onpasse. Perhaps the most important thing, though, that happened at Moulins was the first meeting of Catherine and Henry. Now, Shakespeare has a very famous scene in Henry V showing the meeting of Henry and Catherine, which is sadly fictional, although it is frankly adorable. Here it is, though, in the more contemporary chronicle of John Hall. Quote, the next day, after they had assembled again, the French party brought with them the Lady Catherine only to the intent that the King of England saying and beholding so fair a lady and so minion a damsel should be inflamed and wrapped in love, that he to obtain so beautiful an espouse, should the sooner agree to a gentle peace. A similar description of the event comes in the account by the French chronicler Monstrelet. Quote, On the morrow of three weeks, they again met there, and remained together for several days in the same state, and with the same number of persons as before, with the exception of the Lady Catherine, who had been brought the first time that the King of England might see her, and who was not now present. King Henry was very desirous to marry her, and not without cause, for she was very handsome, of high birth, and of the most engaging manners. In these accounts, it is the French that are pushing Catherine at Henry, so as to agree to the peace, but in actual fact, it was a lot more complicated than that. As I've said before, it was a central tenet of Henry's foreign policy to secure this foreign marriage, but he did not just want her hand in marriage, he wanted the crown that came with her and the lands that he had taken. In his book, The Tudor Queens of England, David Lodes assign each of the queens an adjective. Catherine's is trophy, and I think that gets close to how she was viewed in these treaty negotiations. She appears to embody France itself. The French negotiators saw her as something that was soon to be largely in English possession, but only with caveats. Henry saw her as the prize for all his labours. Perhaps in frustration with the English obstinance, the Duke of Burgundy went off to the Dauphin and concluded a deal, whereupon they both pivoted to take on Henry. This led to a further round of aggressive negotiations, as the English armies under Henry continued to kick the crap out of the French, most notably at Pointeuse, a heavily defended French fortress just 20 miles from Paris. The English army ravaged and pillaged the French countryside, all in an attempt to punish the French back to the negotiating table. But all it seemed to do was bring her enemies closer together. In an attempt to secure their new alliance, Duke Jean and the Dauphin met at the bridge of Montreuil. 40 miles southeast of Paris. Despite their rapprochement, the two sides were still extremely distrustful of each other, and with good reason. They approached each other with ten retainers each, an attempt to prevent any funny business coming about, but what instead happened was a slaughter in which Duke John of Burgundy was killed. Whether this was a premeditated act by the Dauphin, or just something that happened in the heat of the moment, it was a diplomatic disaster for him. The new duke, Philip the Good, was urged by the French Queen and by his allies to immediately firmly ally with England to avenge his father's murder. What followed in 1420 was the Treaty of Troyes, one of the most extraordinary treaties in English history, and one that, if things had happened differently, could have changed the face of modern Europe. I'm going to quote heavily from Montpellier's Chronicle for this, as it is very rare to get so detailed an account of such a meeting of kings. Quote, at this period, Henry, King of England, accompanied by his two brothers, the Dukes of Clarence and of Gloucester, the Earls of Huntingdon, Warwick and Kym, and many of the great lords of England, with about 1,600 combatants, the greater part of whom were archers, set out from Rouen and came to Pointeuse and thus to Saint-Denis. He crossed the bridge at Charenton and left part of his army to guard it, and thence advanced by Provence to Tours in Champagne. The Duke of Burgundy and several of the nobility to show him honour and respect came out to meet him and conducted him to the hotel where he was lodged with his princes and his army was quartered in the adjacent villages. Shortly after his arrival, he waited on the King and Queen of France and the Lady Catherine, their daughter, when great honours and attentions were by them mutually paid to each other. Councils were then held for the ratification of the peace, and whatever articles had been disagreeable to the King of England in the treaty were then corrected according to his pleasure. When all related to the peace had been concluded, King Henry, according to the custom of France, affianced the Lady Catherine. On the morrow of Trinity Day, the King of England espoused her in the parish church near to which he was lodged. Great pomp and magnificence were displayed by him and his princes, as if he were at that moment king of all the world." On the part of the King of France was present at this ceremony, Philip, Duke of Burgundy, by whose means the treaty and alliance have been brought about. He was attended by, and here is a great big, long list of names I won't trouble you with quote, all or at least the greater part join with the Duke in promising forever to preserve inviolate the peace. The terms of the treaty were rather complex, but here is the crucial bit which is from Article One. A note, whenever I say item, that is just the Latin word that essentially means I've moved on to the next point. Quote, Charles, by the grace of God, King of France, to all our bailiffs, provosts, and sanichels, and to all the principal of our officers of justice, or to their lieutenants, greeting. Be it known that we have this day concluded a perpetual peace in our town of Troyes, with our very dear and well-beloved son, King Henry of England, heir and regent of France, in our name and in his own. In consequence of his marriage with our well-beloved daughter Catherine and by other articles in the treaty concluded between us for the welfare and good of our subjects and for the security of the realm, so that henceforward our subjects and those of our said son may traffic and have a mutual intercourse with each other as well as on this and as on other side of the sea. So this part is the crucial bit for our story. France and England are at peace and Henry and Catherine are to be married. The treaty continues, Item It has been agreed that our said son King Henry shall henceforth honour us as his father, and our consort the Queen as his mother, but shall not by any means prevent us from the peaceable enjoyment of our crown during our life. Item Our said son Henry our said son King Henry engages that he will not interfere with the rights and royalties of our crown so long as we may live, nor with the revenues, but that he may be applied as before to the support of our government and the charges of the state and that our consort the Queen shall enjoy her state and dignity of Queen, according to the custom of the realm, with the unmolested enjoyment of the revenues and domains attached to it. This bit is where the French king saves some face. He will remain king for the rest of his life, and Henry promises not to interfere. This is not a situation like Richard II faced when he was defeated, deposed, and murdered. Charles will be allowed to remain on the throne. It continues, quote, It it is agreed that our said daughter Catherine shall have such a dower paid her from the revenues of England as English queens have hitherto enjoyed, namely 60,000 crowns, two of which are of the value of an English noble. It it is agreed that our said son King Henry shall by every means in his power, without transgressing the laws he has sworn to maintain and the customs of England, assure to our said daughter Catherine the punctual payment of the aforesaid dower of 60,000 crowns from the moment of his decease. Item, um, it is agreed that should it happen that our said daughter survive our said son, King Henry, she shall receive as her dower from the kingdom of France the sum of forty thousand francs yearly, and this sum shall be settled on the lands and lordships which were formerly held in dower by our dear and well-beloved lady Blanche, consort to King Philip of France, of happy memory, our very redoubted lord and great-grandfather. So here, King Henry does give way on something the dowry, which instead of France providing one, Henry actually had to pay. It amounted to around £7,500 per year, which of course led to all the witchcrafty nonsense that dominated the final years of his stepmother Joanna of Navarre's life because England had no money. For a kingdom that was struggling financially, it seems odd that it was this that Henry gave way on, but there you go. Finally, the coup de grace. it am, it is agreed that immediately on our decease and from henceforward, our crown and kingdom of France, with all its rights and appurtenances, shall devolve forever to our said son, King Henry, and to his heirs. There you go. That's the bit that Henry was after. The very reason that he had first desired a marriage with Catherine, the reason he had invaded France. Thanks to his conquest and marriage, he was now the heir to the French throne, as would his descendants be. Obscure point of law that maybe only I will find interesting. You may notice that throughout this section of the treaty, Charles is being very clear to make Henry V his heir and not suggest it is thanks to marrying his daughter that his claim has legitimacy. That is because of the Salic law that you may remember stems back from the Tordonelle scandal that I talked about way back in episode 17, Isabella of France, the noblest and fairest of them all. The crux of it is that the French crown could not be transmitted through a woman, it had to be male all the way down. Therefore Catherine could not make her son king of France, only a man could. That man had to be Henry, which is why the treaty is very explicit on that point. This, of course, meant the disheriting of the Dauphin, who is barely mentioned in the treaty. You have to drill down to near the end, where it says, "Item." Um, Considering the horrible, enormous crimes that have been perpetrated in our Kingdom of France by Charles, calling himself Dauphin of Yen, it is agreed that neither our said son King Henry nor our well-beloved Philip Duke of Burgundy shall enter into any treaty of peace or concord with the said Charles without the consent of us three and of our council and the three estates of the realm for that purpose assembled. Now, of course, all this talk of peace was rather moot as the Dauphin remained at large and still had strong enough a force to give the Anglo-Burgundian regime pause, but it is definitely the case that this was the nadir of French fortune. Their crown had just been signed off to the Lancastrian Plantagenets of England, for the loyalists to the Dauphin all seemed lost. I'm going to leave it there on that historical cliffhanger. Next time, we go into Catherine's short reign as Queen of England and her life as a dowager queen, including, of course, her infamous second marriage, or perhaps not, with Owen Tudor. Who knew that her marriage of greatest significance would not be with Henry V, the conqueror of France and King of England, but an obscure Welsh squire who literally fell into her lap at a dance. (laughs)